Molly Hurley is a Wagoner Fellow from Rice University in Houston, Texas, a Nuclear Program Fellow with the Prospect Hill Foundation, and Fellowship Associate with Beyond the Bomb. She currently works as an independent researcher studying nuclear weapons issues, their intersectionality with many other social justice issues, and the role that artwork could play in carrying on stories and messages about the atrocities committed for the sake of nuclear development and dominance. Starting in June, Molly will take her work over to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan. Here we go. Here we go. All right. Um, so where are you at right now? I am currently based in Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, I got, okay, I got stuck with my uh, family since the pandemic and it's driving me insane. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I graduated from college uh, in December of 2019. Um, and then I came home within just like a few months um, because of the pandemic. Um, and like, it's, it's just uh, my mom and my sister and me, and my sister is younger. So she went back to school this semester. Okay. Like, just my mom and me, and like, you know, God love her. Like, I need to get the fuck away from her. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We were planning on asking you about this at some point, but we want to talk to you about your um, upcoming trip to Japan. Yeah. So we cannot <laughs> wait to hear about that. Um, yeah, for sure. Well, I guess we can go ahead and get started. Um, if you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and um, your work, I just know you through Beyond the Bomb, but I know you do a lot of other work on nuclear issues. So um, if you just wanted to tell us about how you see nuclear issues impacting marginalized voices, why should nuclear issues matter to, you know, everyday people and not just be thought of as these issues of like, quote unquote, high politics. Yeah, for sure. So my name is Molly. I'm right now a fellowship associate with Beyond the Bomb. I also work as a nuclear program fellow with the Prospect Hill Foundation, and I uh, am a Wagner fellow from my former university, uh, Rice University in Houston, Texas. Um, the Wagner Fellowship has allowed me to work as an independent researcher, uh, continuing to just uh, learn about myself, nuclear weapons issues, um, but also explore uh, new directions that maybe hopefully the nuclear field could go, um, uh, a direction that would much more heavily incorporate um, other social issues. Um, because something at Beyond the Bond we say all the time is that um, nuclear weapons issues are actually issue zero. They are ground zero, kind of. They are so intersectional. Um, almost anything that you can think of, like, you can probably tie it back to nuclear weapons. Um, I remember having a conversation with a friend, and we were kind of, like, half-jokingly talking about, oh, uh, yeah, man, maybe I should write something about how, like, hunting with dogs or whatever is also tied to nuclear weapons. And I was like, actually, I bet we could tie that together. And I talked about something how like hunting is like kind of a male dominant sport and it's all about like power and violence and killing really. And to some extent, some it's, and here's the thing, some people hunt for sport and some people hunt for survival, right? Nuclear weapons are kind of treated the same way or, um, nuclear weapons are all about violence and destruction, uh, and when it comes to the U.S., honestly, we kind of just have so many nukes for sport. It's just like a pissing contest between us and Russia. But if we think about Korea, who we villainize all the time, the way they view it is that their nuclear weapons are for survival. And like from the American perspective, we'll argue that ours are for survival, but 
we have 20 times more nuclear weapons than China, which is like the third largest arsenal and US and Russia lead first and second like by a long shot. Um, but anyways, back to a little bit about me. So I first got involved with nuclear weapons issues kind of late in the game, depending on how you think the traditional kind of uh, timeline might go for someone who starts entering uh, policy, politics, uh, especially nuclear uh, politics or national security politics. Um, I graduated from Rice with a degree in chemistry, specialization in organic chemistry. Um, I, when I graduated high school, I was going to do like an MD PhD program, uh, but somewhere along the way, I swapped a lot from that to regular PhD to like law school. I even took the LSAT once. <laughs> and I was about to graduate the fall of 2019, and I was like, yeah, nah, to all of that. Uh, so I was really looking for what to do next. Um, I had done a fair amount of volunteering uh, for Planned Parenthood. Um, and that was really nice. So I kind of wanted to find an opportunity to be more involved, um, even just like kind of at the at the minimum level of like phone banking or something. I don't know. Um, when I came across this fellowship for Beyond the Bomb, it was their inaugural term in the fall of 2019. And I was lucky enough to get it. And within probably five, six, seven weeks of being in that fellowship, I was like, this is it. This is for me. I got to keep pursuing these issues. I was so captivated by one, my complete lack of knowledge of anything having to do with nuclear weapons, aside from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which honestly is by design in the US. Uh, and two, uh, just how truly intersectional these issues are, how intertwined they are with race and gender, economic inequality, imperialism even. Um, and so I stuck with it. And Pretty quickly, I decided that I would apply really last minute to the Wagner Fellowship at my school. I got it. And so that's what I've been working on ever since then. Um, but I could give endless examples of <laughs> how nuclear weapons issues can be tied to so many others. Um, and I don't know if we have enough time for me to go into that big rant. I definitely want to unpack something you just said a little bit more when you were talking about how you know, from the US, like we only know things about Hiroshima and Nagasaki and you said that's by design. So I just wanna hear a little bit more about what you mean when you say by design. Yeah, totally. Um, so we could even go all the way back to 1945 when Hiroshima and Nagasaki first happened. The US very, very heavily suppressed information coming out of Japan about the effects of the atomic bombing, the, the terrible burns that people suffered, the radiation effects that just, complete level of devastation suffered by Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And it really wasn't until John Hersey came out with his, uh, honestly, probably considered like a seminal piece in history about nuclear weapons that really uh, truly described the human suffering and consequences of these nuclear weapons. Um, uh, let's see here. And even today, um, the entire dialogue around nuclear weapons, like even though now we're like, oh yeah, you know, people suffered, there was radiation effects. Some people's like shadows like got burned into the ground, but you know what? It was okay because it saved half a million American lives. We had to do it. Japan wouldn't have surrendered either way. Um, it's very, very, very heavily 
thought of as like it was a necessary evil um and that's not true there is lots and lots of credible evidence out there and lots and lots of sources out there that say first of all the the, the half a million american lives number completely overinflated um robert takaki has a great book that kind of uh goes a little bit over that but even like u.s military estimates of the uh, projected casualty rates if we had to do like another invasion, um, they were nothing near 500,000. Uh, if I remember correctly, maybe in the 100,000s, although it's been a while since I looked at that number. Um, but I just remember it was drastically lower. In addition, um, lots of uh, credible historians um, say, and I guess, you know, no one knows for certain because we can't do all these what ifs, but I feel like there's reason there's reason to believe that even if we had not bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki, as soon as the Soviet Union came in and joined, Japan would have folded within very soon. And really, they were on the brink of surrender for a while now. Um, and Japan would have surrendered much, much sooner, actually, if Truman hadn't been so stubborn and he accepted their surrender with the one condition that they get to keep their emperor. But the US government and Truman were being typical males and they wanted complete dominance. And they were like, no, we need a complete surrender, no conditions. Um, and so it's like Japan, a few times, actually, if I remember correctly, it was like, we'll surrender, but we want to keep our emperor. And he was like, no. <laughs> uh, but after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, guess what? Japan surrendered and they kept their emperor. Like, they got that condition anyway. So what really was the point of bombing them? So, like, you have this narrative that's in the U.S. that's like that. How, how does that then translate to policy? How do people like you and other activists kind of break through that uh, really predominant narrative in the U.S. to make real change? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely, absolutely an education thing. Um, I have friends that I talk to about this all the time. One friend in particular talks about how hard she has been trying ever since I got like really involved in nuclear stuff to convince her dad that no, a bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki was like not a necessary evil. And, you know, he's, you know, not some, you know, right wing nationalist, but uh, he's older, and this is the this is the story that he grew up with, and so to to completely uh, upturn that, like uh, Aviva, my friend, has to uh, show him sources after sources after sources, and I think that's an example of just how hard it can be to attain justice for people who just like don't haven't lived the experience of oppression and exploitation, because it's this idea of like, well, if I haven't experienced it, doesn't exist. And so all of a sudden the burden of education is on you, the one who's like already suffering anyways, and it's ridiculous. But so education is really important. That's uh, something that I feel like people in our space are trying to do quite a bit of uh, just highlighting a lot of these unknown or overlooked facts and everything. And what's even more important is that, you know, it's actually not even just in the general public, it's within our own space. Um, the nuclear field is very overrun by old white males. At Beyond the Bomb, we refer to the field as being pale, male, and stale. Um, I love and, that. I know, wow. that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and they, they're all stuck in this like, you know, white imperialistic Cold War mindset. Um, and, you know, times are changing. Um, 
we're not we're not officially in any sort of cold war anymore i think there's a valid argument that we're about to enter if we have not already a cold war with china uh but if we're talking nuclear issues china's is around 300 ours is around 5800 nuclear weapons arsenal um but so uh, a, a huge job um is not just educating the general public but educating like people in our own field that like it's time, it's time for change. It's time for young people. It's time for people of color. It's time for a shift in the conceptualization of the use and purpose of nuclear weapons. Very much nuclear weapons are uh, almost deified as these like ultimate weapons. And uh, pretty much ever since their inception, they very quickly became the cornerstone of national security for every single country that does have nuclear weapons, which are nine countries. And it's really unfortunate that we're so deep set in this belief of deterrence that without nuclear deterrence, like everything would go to shit and <laughs> and war would break out and it would just be like devastating. There's a lot of people will argue that the reason there hasn't been a World War Three is because of nuclear weapons. Um, but really, our entire nuclear weapons history is like we have not had a nuclear war through pure luck. Um, there have been so many false alarms and close calls over history, and not just the Cuban Missile Crisis. Like, yeah, that's the most famous one, but there are lots and lots of other instances. In the U.S. alone, we have literally lost multiple nuclear weapons. Like, they just disappeared, and we have yet to find them. Some of them we found. Other ones are, like, still missing. There was one time where this plane was carrying two nuclear weapons over North Carolina, and it just fell all out of the plane. And neither of them detonated, luckily, but one of them uh, came very, very close. It was like, there was something like six fail safes and four of them failed or something. So like, we almost, you know, nuked our own state, like. Stuff like that blows my mind because, you know, another pillar of U.S. national security is like counterterrorism. And it's like, you think about how easily those just missing nuclear weapons could go to um, like, terrorists or you know who we consider like rogue actors and whatnot and it's like that's not an issue like how how is that possible yeah and that that reminds me of this amazing incident where uh it was somewhere i want to say in southwest colorado uh or not colorado but southwest the u.s and uh it's Man, it's been a while since I read up on it, but I watched like a brief documentary on it. Um, in particular, uh, one of the women, Ardeth Platt, uh, the New York Times did an obituary on her when she died last year, but she and another woman and another man, I think it was just those three, they were all in their 80s. They're like Catholic nuns, priests, or somehow affiliated with the Catholic church. Um, they just like went to a nuclear facility with some like bolt cutters, like cut through the chain link fence, walked around, cut through another chain link fence. Uh, they were like inside this nuclear facility for like a good hour and a half, I think it was. Um, just like wandering around, trying to, um, you know, make their way over to the actual warehouse that stored the nuclear weapons. And they got very close. There's like a, uh, uh, there was like another warehouse um, kind of in front or beside the, the one with the nuclear weapons. They got right up to that point until a guard found them. And they were like, what are you doing here? And immediately the guy, they like opened up a banner um, and they and they just like splattered the wall and the floor with like blood or something to like, you know, show 
what that is filled with fried nuclear but yeah they walked into this facility like 80 year old people walked into a nuclear facility for an hour and a half they were not caught for that long um and we think that our nuclear weapons are protected from terrorists like god well even look at whose hands they were in what four months ago or something and i mean you know yeah biden's like marginally better like but still they're in the they're in control of like one person which is just absurd. yes yes yeah sole authority um yeah it's a big sticking point um sole authority means that the president has the sole authority to launch a nuclear weapon whenever he wants um and yeah it was it was uh even more urgent under trump uh because you know he could wake up at 3 a.m to like a mean tweet from kim <laughs> yeah. be like all right i'm a new um <laughs> Yeah, you know, Biden, maybe he won't nuke someone from a mean tweet, but, you know, he bombed Syria, like, within 100 days of office. Like, So, I don't know, is he really? Anyways, uh, the point is, regardless of Democrat or Republican president, and even if I liked Biden, I would not Biden to want to have sole authority. It is completely undemocratic. No one can stop the president from launching this nuke. Um, there is no sort of like chain of command where like if enough people down the line are like, wait, we shouldn't do this, then the the command gets like nixed or whatever. Nope. If Biden says we're going to launch, then we're going to launch. Um, theoretically, someone along that line uh, could be like, I'm not going to do this. You know what? They get fired. Get someone else to do it. Like, it's pretty simple. Like, there's no legal way to stop the president from launching a nuke if like that's what his order is. And uh, believe it or not, old white men argue with me with this all the time. <laughs> Hard to imagine that. <laughs> I know. Old white men with opinions? No. Very yeah. surprised. <laughs> so you kind of alluded to a couple of these things already, but what do you think current nuclear policy and like scholarship on nuclear issues lacks right now? Uh, young people and people of color, without a doubt. Um, I don't want to say that in a way that makes it sound like representative politics is like all we need for real change, because like there are plenty of young people and people of color who I think all of their ideas suck. Uh, but um, in general, at least within the nuke space, at least within the nuke space that I'm in, <laughs> um, is a lot of us younger people and people of color, like, we're not just focused on deterrence. In fact, that's like one of our small, that's like the least of our concerns. What we're focused on is um, nuclear justice, um, righting the wrongs that we have committed over our entire nuclear history from uranium mining in the Navajo Nation to uh, nuclear testing in the Marshall Islands to the bombings of Hiroshima in Japan. Um, and like all of these like still deeply, deeply affect these communities today. And it doesn't really even stop there. We can tie even deeper to um, the fact that we are set to spend $1.7 trillion modernizing our nuclear arsenal over 30 years. Um, uh, when we could use that money for, you know, healthcare, <laughs> for Medicare for all or something, um, all of this money wasted on weapons that hypothetically, we're never even supposed to use. Like, that's the whole point of having these weapons for deterrence. Um, and we're just dumping trillions, billions of dollars into them. Uh, and for what? As opposed to putting this into, like, 
you know, taking care of our own people, like that's going to serve us so much longer term, in my opinion, and in a lot of people's opinions. Um, so we absolutely need a shift in opinion, and that is most likely going to come from younger people, from people of color. Um, and this shift in focus from, you know, uh, might is right, and this uh, sort of, and like just get this idea of like deterrence off the pedestal that it's like this ultimate form of national security or something like nix that um and go back to focusing on like our own actual people um i personally have like a huge beef to um with with deterrence one because it doesn't it doesn't it it works until it doesn't. That's the whole thing about deterrence. But in addition, I just personally think deterrence is a form of imperialism. Like the whole idea is that like we have enough nukes to destroy you if you attack us, so just don't attack us. And and you know, people on the right will argue that like we haven't had a World War III because of nuclear weapons, like it's maintained world peace. And it's like maybe depending on how you define peace if we like to think of peace as holding a gun to someone's head and being like do whatever i say um like i don't know <laughs> it's 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 the imposition of our own will um through threat of nuclear annihilation and that just doesn't sound very peaceful to me totally that's something we talked about a lot and we talked about on our nuclear episode how it just maintains this coloniality especially in u.s foreign policy and even um other like white states that have nukes just one preventing like non-white states from getting nukes you look at how um u.s sanctions against like iran and north korea how that is just another form of coloniality but then also like you said um about imposing will on other countries, just don't attack us or else, totally violent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it's such a power play um, and it's such an ego boost. Uh, I came out with an article recently with two wonderful colleagues from Beyond the Bomb uh, titled Sex, Death, Dragon Ladies and Nuclear Weapons. Uh, the title is a reference to Carol Clone's uh, uh, piece Sex, Death and something or other. I forget the whole title. But Carol Cone is like this amazing um, nuclear uh, history, political scientist, whatever. Um, she really sort of was um, the one who really uh, brought feminism into national security and nuclear security. Um, but ours is a satirical piece, and it was partially in response to Atlanta, um, and it essentially tries to compare the fetishization of Asian women with the sexualization of nuclear weapons. Um, and for a brief preview, uh, the very opening line is hot, sexy Asians in your area. So I think it's a fun <laughs> We will definitely link that in yes. the show notes when we um, publish this episode. I can't wait to read that. Yeah, I, I also read your recent piece with um, the bulle- bulletin oh, or something. It was so interesting. I loved your take on um, like this new treaty. I, I was wondering if you could actually just talk about it a bit because I I hadn't heard of this you know interesting treaty that's been signed by all these countries before I read your piece. Yeah, yeah. So the treaty I discussed in. The article I wrote for the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists is called The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the TPNW. Um, It is, uh, it's also uh, referred to just simply as the Ban Treaty. Um, 
It opened up for Signature in 2017. It came about from this uh, sort of a humanitarian initiative is what it was called. A bunch of countries kind of came together to really talk about uh, what's right and what's wrong about the current nuclear states movements or lack thereof towards complete nuclear disarmament. Um, all the nuclear weapons they um, uh, protested by not showing up to these meetings at all. They didn't participate. They were invited, of course. Um, and but uh, they got they got enough you know support from other countries that they formed the TPNW, uh, and then it passed and opened for signature in 2017. And then in 2020, it reached its uh, 50th ratification, which was the threshold for the TPNW to officially enter into force. And that happened January 22nd, I believe, two days after Biden's inauguration. Um, the ban treaty is huge in terms of this uh, sort of, what's the word, landmark in history of progress um, on the issue of nuclear weapons. Um, uh, I think a fair amount of credit can go to this organization called the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, um, currently headed by Beatrice Finn. Uh, they won the Nobel Peace Prize in, I want to say, 2017 uh, for their um, ability to get the TPNW um, put, pushed through and everything. Um, and it is a very contentious treaty, as I'm sure you can imagine, because like the name suggests, it bans the possession development of nuclear weapons, um, like completely. Um, any country that has ratified it um, obviously will uphold um, their, their um, you know, ban from being able to um, develop nuclear weapons, have nuclear weapons, even if they're not their own nuclear weapons, they cannot uh, house nuclear weapons of another country's in their, within their borders and stuff like that. Um, and as great of a landmark or whatever in history that it is, of all of the countries that have not just ratified, but also signed um, the TPNW, uh, not a single one of these countries actually has nuclear weapons. And so there is an argument that like, while it's great, it's not currently effective. Um, and who knows when it will become effective, depending on how we're going to define it being effective. Um, um, but regardless, my article basically says that whether or not you truly believe that the TPNW is international law, that the US, China, Russia, UK, France, um, India, Pakistan, North Korea, whether these countries are truly in violation of international law by their possession of nuclear weapons because of the TPNW, regardless of your opinion on that, just the fact that the TPNW exists and that it got ratified and that it entered into force, I think is significant enough for us to, to wanna celebrate um, this, this amazing event. Um, and so my article in the bulletin points out how the TPNW can be a tool to uh, facilitate the shift that I want to see that I kind of described earlier that I think the nuclear field needs and it's a direction towards um, a more humanitarian focus um, and a more post-colonial focus where um, it's not about domination over the races it's not uh, it's it's not about you know our historical western hegemony or anything um, I address in the article I address four specific points um, assumptions um, 
that are pretty rampant among people who are kind of in the nuclear space or uh, people who just, you know, even the general public who are like, eh, I kind of know a little bit about nuclear weapons, but they've never like read super extensively on it. Or maybe they have and they're just like stuck in these really old Cold War thinking like I was describing earlier too. Awesome. Um, this is kind of switching gears a little bit, but I kind of want to talk um, like talk about like the role of culture in disseminating these opinions about nuclear weapons. Because I'm thinking throughout this conversation, I've been thinking about, you know, TV shows, movies, how that has um, impacted mentalities and like, you know, these colonial imperial mentalities about mm -hmm. nuclear weapons. And I, you know, yeah, I yeah, that, oh my gosh, that's a great point. Um, so many thoughts. Yes, yes. The cultural understanding of nuclear weapons is so vastly different. Um, for example, and like, like just the U.S. and China's opinions of nuclear weapons alone is very different. And the conceptualization of deterrence is very different. Um, I am Chinese, so I do a lot of reading on China whenever I can. Um, I have a deep personal investment in what's going on between the U.S. and China. Um, and in trying to understand uh, China and its culture better. Um, and so, yeah, I've, I've, I've read a little bit about China and nuclear stuff. And then I might also mention the U.S. versus Japan's understanding of nuclear weapons, because the U.S. and China both have nuclear weapons. U.S. has nuclear weapons. Japan does not, but we bombed Japan. Um, so really quickly on China, for example, for example, in the early history of China's nuclear uh, program and everything, they refrain from using the Chinese word for deterrence for a very long time because the specific word used for deterrence in Chinese has a very different connotation than deterrence in the U.S. In my opinion, it's a more accurate connotation of deterrence because um, in the U.S. we think of deterrence and we're like, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of neutral. It, it gives us the safety, right? The, the whole implication is that it's like this good thing. It's like this new it's like this maybe neutral, possibly like good kind of term that gives us security. Um, in Chinese, the term um, has more of a aggressive, forceful connotation. And I think it's also a good example of how China viewed nuclear weapons in their early years. Um, a really common term that the Chinese officials used when they talked about the Soviet Union's or the U.S.'s nuclear weapons um, was referring to their possession as nuclear blackmail. Um, wow. and, uh, and, you know, China's entire history and relationship with nuclear weapons is interesting. Um, and it's changed in some respects as it would under different leaders. But even under a single leader, Mao, his opinions of nuclear weapons changed a lot. Um, and that's like a whole lecture I could give. But one thing that I will point out too is that an off-quoted um, statement from Mao with regards to nuclear weapons was Mao calling 
nuclear weapons a paper tiger um as in it looks like a tiger might be scary but it's just made of paper it's totally flimsy and at the time in the west everyone was like what <laughs> what is wrong with mao he thinks that nuclear weapons are a paper tiger um and that's uh th there's a lot of nuance in trying to explain what mao really meant but to try my best to say it in a sentence or two um and you know i i you know i don't know mal <laughs> he died before I was even <laughs> uh, so i can't tell you what was going through his head but some thoughts that i have is you know um this one he, he made that statement i'm pretty sure before china acquired its own nuclear weapon um and to some extent perhaps it's referring to the idea that it's a paper tiger because nuclear weapons are never actually supposed to be used it's a paper tiger because you know um it's threatening uh the us the soviet union other nuclear states will use the new the nuclear weapons as a form of threat but it's made of paper because none of these countries has the balls to actually use them because of the backlash that would come from using them um, and all the other consequences, uh, like backlash publicly, but also just like, you know, you're destroying, you're literally destroying like entire metropolitan areas, probably, um, or basically like you're killing countless people and like the environmental impact is going to be significant, right? So um, that's, that's an example of, you know, even back in the mid 20th century, uh, like people just do not understand China and how, how much Chinese culture shapes their understanding of things in the world. And even further, like just how different Chinese culture is. And that leads to these huge differences in understandings and conceptualizations. And we just like have no idea. We're constantly trying to impose Western understandings of Chinese decision-making and it just does not apply. And um, to, you know, 180 over to Japan, um, I actually uh, have a painting that I did myself called Cultural Explosion. And it's, um, it's in the background is this mushroom cloud and gray, but then on top, I drew um, all a number of different sort of uh, cultural icons on the left side hand side is um, cultural icons from America and on the right is uh, from Japan and all of these icons developed from or were heavily influenced by uh, the nuclear age. Um, so, you know, of course I have the Simpsons on there, Dr. Strangelove, Spider-Man, the peace symbol and everything on the American side. And on the left side, of course there's Godzilla. And I mostly reference anime because uh, I'm, I'm a bit of an anime nerd, but there's Akira and Neon Genesis Evangelion, Doraemon, you can even link back to nuclear weapons. So like a little blue cat that I feel like if anyone saw Doraemon, they'd know what I'm talking about, but maybe they don't recognize the name. Um, and even older animes than that. Um, and, and I saw a post on social media a while ago too, even that, you know, in the early days of the nuclear age, it's interesting to think that in the US, we think about like nuclear or radiation related things as being a source of power. Uh, the a radioactive spider gave Spider-Man his powers. But in Japan, like Godzilla came from nuclear weapons and radiation and nuclear power. And it's such a different understanding of like what what comes from possession of nuclear weapons and development. It's, you know, a superpower to the US, but to Japan, it's 
it's this monster. And of course, Godzilla has had many iterations over time, and he's kind of been sanitized from his original origins um, in Japan. Um, but uh, I thought it was a very interesting contrast to point out is um, how, how U.S. versus Japanese media portrays um, some consequences of radiation and nuclear things. It actually, <clears throat> oh, sorry, it like reminds me of what you were saying earlier about how, you know, nuclear weapons, nuclear issues are everything, right? It's not just, we're talking about security, we're talking about art. And it is, I, I've read similar things where the way that Japanese art and manga and anime have developed are so incredibly influenced by what happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And you just have to see that link to see how prevalent that is. Yeah, I've given a whole PowerPoint presentation on the relationship between nuclear weapons and anime, actually. So yeah, yeah, this is, this is definitely my area. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so I really want to hear about your upcoming trip to Japan and like the kind of research you're going to be doing over there. Yeah, so my Wagner Fellowship that I won was originally intended for international research. And so I was supposed to go to Hiroshima and Nagasaki um, in last summer, summer of 2020. Um, and of course, that didn't really happen. You know, something kind of got in the way of international travel. I don't know if we're all familiar with it, but uh, it, it got delayed. Um, in the meantime, my school, um, who administers the, the funds of the fellowship, got permission to let us use any remaining funding that was not dedicated toward international travel on a kind of developing a new domestic wing of our project. Um, and uh, they've even allowed us that like, especially because the pandemic just kept going on and on, that if we just feel like we can't make it internationally at all, we can just have our entire project be domestic. Um, I am going to try my hardest to make it to Japan. Um, in the meantime, I have been working domestically with the Prospect Hill Foundation with Beyond the Bomb. Um, but I will actually be getting myself out of the Midwest uh, in almost exactly two weeks. I'm going to head to D.C. for a week, meet up with all sorts of uh, networking people that I've met on Zoom um, and be like, will you meet me in person? I've been vaccinated, I promise. <laughs> and I'm in New York for a month. And then, fingers crossed, I will be in Hiroshima for about six months. I'll be working with an organization called the World Friendship Center. Um, which is an org that is very heavily affiliated with a number of Hibakusha, which is a Japanese name for atomic bomb survivors. Um, and they have a number of projects that I could possibly work on. One that they mentioned that I'm pretty interested in, um, and that seems like we'll probably try to move forward with, among other things, is uh, trying to record the Hibakusha stories um, in some way or form, kind of a multimedia format. Um, aside from just like writing it down in writing or like getting a video of it, but finding even more creative and powerful ways to carry on their stories. The average Hibakusha is over 80 years old. Um, so a lot of these people are only going to be around for so much longer. So this project is actually very urgent. Um, and I am so passionate about art and I think art Art is such a powerful tool for storytelling. Um, and so I'm really honored to be able to go to Japan, hopefully if travel allows, <laughs> and, and meet with these Hapakusha and find the best way to um, carry their stories on. And something that I think about a lot in preparing for this trip and that I'm trying to read up on too, is a proper way to 
approach this such that when I go to talk to them and write down their stories, put it into a painting or a drawing, uh, interview them, whatever, is to do this in a really non-exploitative way um, because it's a very traumatic experience that they lived through. Um, and the last thing I would ever want them to feel like is that I am trying to use their stories to, for like clout or to like build my own reputation. Like I do not, this project is really not about me at all. I'm just the medium to, um, to facilitate what's happening in the, within the project and everything. Uh, but that's, that's going to be pretty much the primary focus as far as I'm concerned. Um, a lot of details are kind of up in the air because um, I, we really don't know if I'll make it to Japan until I'm like in Japan. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, I'll, I've made connections with several other organizations in Japan and we'll probably try to be working with them in some way or form as well. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty open-ended. It's an independent research project, which means I'm my own boss. I can do whatever I want. Uh, but the goal is definitely just to get a deeper cultural understanding of Japan, their relationship with nuclear weapons. Um, honestly, also just have a good time, uh, enjoy good food over there uh, as kind of a bonus um, and pursue art um, in a way that is humane and ethical um, for telling their stories um, and just to deepen my own relationship I think with myself um, in some respects too, as an Asian American, uh, being able to spend some time in East Asia. That sounds amazing. It sounds like super important work. I'm, I'm personally very excited for you. It just know, sounds like so incredible. I cannot wait to see like what you produce out of this. This is gonna be amazing. Definitely gonna be following your Twitter yes. throughout this whole experience. Thank you. <laughs> I'm excited. It's uh, uh, hopefully I make it over there. <laughs> Do you have any last things that you want to tell us or our audience? Um, lots of thoughts, but <laughs> um, uh, just thank you for listening. Thank you for interviewing me. I'm so flattered to 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 be on this, and I'm so excited. It's been so wonderful meeting other powerful women, feminists, leftists. Like, love to see it. Thank you so much for coming on. We're so excited just to um, talk about these issues because it's not really talked about in mainstream politics. And kind of like we talked about earlier, the way nukes are depicted in culture is just so different from reality and the realities that like marginalized communities experience because of nuclear issues. So just yeah. to spread this information and this education. Yeah, it's definitely just another aspect of American history and politics that gets very heavily sanitized um, to, to fit the, the U.S. narrative. Um, yeah, and U.S. interests. Uh, so I love, I love uh, uh, outing the <laughs> U.S. hegemony. <laughs> I think that's what we're here for. I, I love it. <laughs> I love to see it. Well, thank you so much. I hope you have a good rest of your day. Okay, cool. Oh my God. Molly was amazing. Oh, we're so grateful just to have her on and just to share um, these critical perspectives about nuclear weapons and whatnot.
I know every time she talked, I was like, well, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about imperialism. I want to talk cultural things. There was just so much. I know I learned so much from her and just, there were so many phrases she used that. Well, like the one that you said, like by design, right? That was one that by you brought design. up. I was like, oh my God, it totally is by design. Molly was so great. I am so excited to see her research project too. And what comes out of that? Me too. It made me think a lot about like, I remember when I learned about nuclear weapons in school, we did just talk about deterrence. We talked about nuclear war and all of these things, but we didn't talk about the cultural aspects like the coloniality of nuclear weapons and technology. And, you know, having had this conversation, this information, I'm like, this needs to be in our education system. We really need to bring this to the forefront. Totally. And I feel like, you know, Molly was talking about how beyond the bomb sees nuclear issues as ground zero. And if you said that to a lot of people, they would be like, you're like, you're tripping. (laughs) No, (laughs) Nuclear issues are so far out of so many people's minds, but I think it's so important that we put them at the forefront of people's minds because it affects us in ways that we don't even think about most of the time. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, when we think about I guess from an American mindset, when you think, who are the people affected? You think about survivors from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the people that were affected by um, testing in the Pacific and Marshall Islands. But, you know, the world is not that small. Like what we do in one place inevitably infects us everywhere else. Oh, my God. Especially if the United States is just losing nuclear weapons. She said that. And I was like, I mean, I knew there were rogue nuclear weapons kind of floating Mm -hmm. around. But I was like, how does a plane just lose nuclear weapons that just really threw me and it's like the whole process too right like from uranium mining to the nuclear technology that we build to the facilities that are really dangerous to the weapons who we don't use but we also spend billions of dollars on like almost every single part of that process it's it just seems not it seems so wasteful it becomes even more maddening it's like how is this still a thing i d- I know. Thank you all so much for listening to our interview with Molly. We have a couple more interviews mm-hmm. coming up about um, critical perspectives on nuclear technology, nuclear weapons, and whatnot. So stay tuned. Yeah, we will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.